Uh, it's my favorite of the seven churches uh, here in Revelation. And, uh, and what I love about the church at Laodicea is, is the city itself. I mean, the, the city itself was a very wealthy city. Uh, you know, it was a, a very uh, affluent city. Uh, in fact, I, I read yesterday as I, was, as I was just continuing reading, just doing some hi- historical things, that the average home in Laodicea was around 3,000 square feet. That's pretty big. It reminds us of the size of our homes today. And in a time where most people's homes in the Middle East were about the size of a parking spot, they had huge, elaborate homes. And so Laodicea, Laodicea in a lot of ways, uh, reminds me of America. Because if you haven't look, no, you know, noticed this or looked around, we are extremely blessed. You know, two-thirds of the world lives on less than, what, $2 a day. Uh, I spend that driving through the drive-thru and getting a Frosty at Wendy's. We are a blessed people. God has richly blessed us. And when I think, oh, I wish I had more stuff, I look down, I look around at all the stuff that I have, and I think, well, none of this stuff's really ever brought contentment anyway. But Laodicea look, looks like us both economically, but they also look like us sinfully. And as I've studied through and, and meditated on, uh, prayed over this text, and really uh, you know, tried to get this text into me, my prayer this morning is that the truth of this text would absolutely burst out of me and that you would see the gospel and that you would see the truth of this passage. Because at the end of the day, my words will not change you. But the word of God transforms lives. I, I stand on that. I would not, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I would not be up here preaching if I did not believe that the Bible gives life to those that are spiritually dead. I, I wouldn't preach if I didn't believe that. I wouldn't preach if I didn't believe that Jesus had the power to open up your eyes and to save you this morning. For those that have walked through the doors that are unregenerate, that have never called out to Jesus in faith and repentance. Uh, if you have your notes with you, we see the, the main lesson from this text is that, that God calls us to repentance. He calls us to repentance. And what I want you to see and understand this morning is, is the great necessity we have as a church to walk with Jesus. It sounds simple enough, but the church at Laodicea failed to do this. You know, I, I mentioned the church was very wealthy. Uh, the church was centered around trade. It was centered around the, uh, this eye salve that they had to help people with their vision. And it was centered around this black wool. They, they had these black sheep and and, and, and we're, you know, you know, we talk about the black sheep of the family. Like, no, no, no. Th- these sheep were very, very good. And they, this wool was kind of like getting an Armani suit, right? This was like getting a, a Lacoste or a polo shirt. It was the best kind of material to make clothes with in their day. And the, and the Laodiceans were known for this all over the world. In fact, the church of Laodicea was so wealthy that in A.D. 60, an earthquake came and completely wiped out the city completely wiped it out. And when Rome came in and Rome said, hey, we will give you money to rebuild this city. We will give you the funds to help you do it. Laodicea, they were so self-sufficient and so proud and arrogant. They said, Rome, you keep your money. We're going to rebuild our city on our own backs. And they did. They had the money to do it. I mean, how often, when a city denies government money, you know they've got money, right? And so that's what they did. And so uh, if you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 14 through 22. And if you are physically able, I would ask that you would stand in honor and reverence 
uh, in honor of and in reverence to the reading of God's inerrant, life-giving word. And to the church, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness and may, uh, may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, and we are ushered into your presence. Father, not by singing, not by just gathering as a faith family, but we are ushered into your presence by the name of Jesus. And Father, we thank you for the opportunity you've given us to gather as a faith family, to open up the bread of life, and God, to see great and wonderful truths from it. And God, I pray that as we've opened up your word, I pray that it would go forth with power and with conviction. And God, this morning, that you would use your word in our lives to mold and to shape the believer into the image of Christ. And God, I pray that you would use your word this morning to convict hearts, to expose sin, and to bring life to those that are spiritually dead. Father, we ask that you would do great and mighty things during this service, things that only you can do. Father, I ask this because I believe that you are God and that you are fully capable of doing it. So, Lord, I ask you to move. God, we need you, and I beg you, God, to manifest your presence in this place in such a way that where we leave, Father, we're changed as a result of meeting with you. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in the great name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. I'm losing my voice after one service, and I've got three to go, or two to go, and so I'm going to try to get through this with the ability to get through the next one as well. So if I drink water, you're going to have to forgive me. What I, we see here is, is Jesus has three charges against this church at Laodicea. Three things that he's going to point out uh, to them in correcting them. The first charge that Jesus has against the church at Laodicea is this. They were not useful to God. Now go back to verse 14 with me. It says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I like that wording. Jesus is describing himself, and I really want to focus in on the last description of himself as he says the beginning of God's creation. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses believe this. They'll take that one verse and a couple of other ones out of context, and they'll say, see, Jesus was a created being. He was the first of created beings. He is the greatest created being, but that Jesus was a created being nonetheless. And this is where a little Bible and a little ignorance can really be tricky here because the Bible wasn't written in English. 
It was written in Hebrew and Greek with a portion of it in Aramaic. The Greek word for beginning here describes Jesus as the originator and source of God's creation. The originator and source of God's creation. This is foundational to the church. Foundational. And I love this. Why does Jesus describe himself as this at the beginning of this passage? Because he is showing and telling the church at Laodicea, I'm the very one that created you. Right? I am the originator of creation. All the blessings that you have, all the, uh, all the money you have, everything you have as a result of me giving it to you. He says, I am the originator of God's creation, which goes on to really teach us what John chapter 1 says, that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, all things were created through him. Nothing was created apart from him that has been created, right? Jesus is the originator. He is the very source of God's creation. Jesus is God. I've been preaching through the book of John at East Point for the last year, and we finished chapter 10 the other day. One of the main things that just astounds me is that some people today will back up and say, Jesus never claimed to be God in the flesh, and they couldn't be more full of lies. Because Jesus didn't just claim to be God, he emphatically claimed to be God time and time and time again. He's God. And he begins this passage by saying, I'm the originator, I'm the source of God's creation. And then go to the verse 15. Four little words, I know your works. I know your works. The other six churches that that Wade and Frank have preached on here in the book of Revelation, Jesus had good things to say about them, right? He he would commend them and then tear them down. Not the church of Laodicea. Jesus has nothing good to say to the church at Laodicea. Nothing. He says, I know your works. And what I want you to see this morning is your deeds, your works, always reveal what you love and who you follow. The Bible says you will know them by their what? Their fruits, their works, their deeds. That's how you will know them. If you show me your life, and you show me where you spend your time, where you spend your energy, I will tell you who your God is. Right? You give me five minutes with somebody, you're going to tell me the things that matter to you most in this life, five short minutes. And if Jesus matters, he's going to come out of your mouth in some way, shape, or form. He's going to. George Ross always said this, and and I'm going to quote him because it takes the sting away from me here, but he used to always say, you show me someone's checkbook and their calendar, and I will tell you how much they love God. Can't say amen, you may as well say ouch. Right? You show me your checkbook, your calendar, I can tell you how much they love God. And what's incredible about this is that when Jesus says, I know your works, I know your deeds, is that everything you've ever done in your life, every thought you have ever thought, Everything that's gone run across your mind, everything you have done, maybe you've been able to keep from your husband, maybe you kept it from your wife, maybe your children don't know. Everything about your life, everything you've ever done is laid open and bare to an all-knowing God in heaven who sees everything. That's astounding. And it's somewhat embarrassing to us, right? He sees and knows everything. And this is the greatness of the gospel. I want you to see this, even in the first part of this passage. And and by the way, the gospel comes forth. I love the Bible, because whether you're in Genesis or whether you're in Revelation, the gospel comes forth in every single passage. 
because he says, I know your works. And later he tells them to repent. So what that teaches us is that even though Jesus knows everything about us, the deepest, darkest secrets of our life hidden deep inside of our soul, guess what? He loves you anyway. That's incredible. That's the good news of the gospel is that even though we have literally spat in his face and rejected him, he has pursued after us and redeemed us back. That's what he's done. And then look, go, go to verse, the rest of the verse. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. This is where context is so important for us, right? Because for years, this is what I've heard people do when they get to Laodicea. And this is the traditional view, and then I'm going to give you what I think is the biblical view. Um, right? So for years, I've heard that you need to be on fire for Jesus or cold for Jesus. He doesn't want lukewarm, nominal Christianity. And while I agree with the premise that he doesn't want lukewarm, nominal Christianity, right? I, I mean, I can respect the man who wants nothing to do with God a whole lot more than I can respect the man who views Jesus as being just nominal importance, right? He's good enough for my Sundays, but he's not good enough for my life. That doesn't make any sense. And so for years, preachers have said, be on fire for Jesus, have a passion for his name, or be cold. Don't be caught in the middle. Well, while the city of Laodicea was very affluent, very wealthy, uh, they were very well known for the money that they had, for the trade industry that they had, for their homes, for everything else, the city itself sat uh, just west of Colossae, about 10 miles. And it was about six miles south of a city called Herapolis. And the nearby Lycus River that ran right through uh, Laodicea was too muddy and the water was undrinkable. The Laodicea had a problem. They had a great problem. They didn't have a good water source. So what they did, and, and I love this because if you re really read and study this, the, this culture of Laodicea, you read, hey, these people are pretty smart, right? Sometimes today we're like, we have indoor plumbing. They did as well, you know? Uh, so what they do is they built these aqueducts out of stones, and they would pipe ice-cold mineral water from the city of Colossae. They would ice also pipe in hot water from the hot springs of Herapolis, right? And so they could, get to the, they could get there, they could get good cold water for refreshment, and they could get good hot water for cooking, bathing, cleaning, uh, medical purposes, things like that. And so the picture we are given here, I want you to take note of this, says that both hot water <coughs> excuse me, and cold water are good because they are useful, so what Jesus is ultimately telling them is this. You need to be useful to God. You need to be useful. Hot water is useful. Cold water is useful. You need to be useful to God. Can you imagine the scene? When I get up in the morning, how many of you drink coffee first thing in the morning? Right? The majority of the congregation, you know, drinks coffee first thing. My wife loves coffee. I'm a Tate County redneck boy. I get up in the morning. I go to the sink. I turn on the water. I stick my head under the sink, and I guzzle probably a half a cup of water, just first thing out of the gate. I love water, right? I want it first thing in the morning. I get the picture that the people of Laodicea would get up early. Now, they may have some water left from the day before, but that water is not any good. It's stagnant. It's been sitting there for some time. And they get up, and they go to these stone pipes, these aqueducts, and they wait for the water to come through these stone pipes where dust may have settled from the night before. 
where the pipes may be hot and that first little bit of cold water gets to be room temperature and lukewarm and they're sitting there with their hands cupped and they get that first bit of water for that the next morning they put it to their mouth and it with extreme disgust they spit it back out because it's lukewarm so jesus tells them that hot water is good cold water is good and then he assesses where they are go to the text with me so because you are lukewarm in verse 16 and neither hot nor cold i will spit you out of my mouth the greek word for spit in this passage is literally vomit to reject with extreme disgust some of you're like don't talk about throwing up or i will throw up right no no i can't just say the word spit Because it doesn't give the picture and it doesn't drive home the point that the Bible is really teaching us. He's saying that that if you are unuseful to me, I will reject you with extreme disgust. I will literally vomit you out of my mouth. Church, I have known people who have gone to church and claim to be Christians most of their lives and have never got plugged into the body and begin to serve in the life of the local church. Ever. You can't come here and claim on Sunday mornings that you love Jesus and not be plugged into the body, serving in the body, and claim that you don't love his church. Those two things don't go hand in hand. You you can't say one thing that you love Jesus and, and say that you don't love his bride. Because Jesus loved the church. He loved it. He loved the church so much he gave himself up for her. And I'm telling you, we're getting more and more into this idea of consumerism Christianity. right? The first question I get when people attend East Point if they have children is, what kind of children ministry do you have? What kind of youth ministry do you have? What kind of preschool do you have? And what they're ultimately saying is, what can you do for me? Not what can I do for East Point. We have, I can't tell you the number of people that have walked through the doors and said, where's kids' church? And I say, kids are expected to sit in worship. And they look at me like I'm, absolute, like I'm the crazy one. And I'm like, what in the world? Uh, you can make a five-year-old sit there. No, he won't be still. I've got a belt. I'll give it to you, right? I can fix that problem. I can fix it. And so we don't have kids' church on Sunday. We do have nursery up, up through five years old. When they hit six, guess what they do? They go to big church. We do have Kids Point, and we do it on Sunday nights while parents are in community groups and houses throughout the community. But, but what, what, we, what we're seeing more and more of is people want to come and sit, check off the religious box, feel good about themselves, and go when Jesus doesn't transform their life in any way, shape, or form throughout the week. And that's not biblical. It's not biblical. Statistics show that 20% of the church's congregation will do 80% of the work. If you've been coming and sitting here at Longview Point, and you haven't got involved and served in any way, shape, or form, God's calling you, and he's pretty much telling you you're being useless for me. Be used. Get plugged into the body. I guarantee you can go to Frank, Trey, Stephen, uh, Kevin. Everybody's scared to go to Kevin because he does the children. Uh, but you can go to any of these guys. Wait and say, hey, where can I get plugged in? What can I do? And they can get you plugged in and, and serving in the life of this church. You, you, you can't go to East Point and slip in the back door and slip out. Because we have about 55, 60 people. You know what we notice when you're not there, right? You know, there's, there's so much to be done. I tell people all the time when they say, hey, we need to do this. That's great. You want to head that up? Like, like do it, right? Don't even ask me. Just start doing things. That would be great because uh, we have so much to do, so much work to be done. 
You just need to get involved and start serving. John MacArthur actually says that this church was an apostate church. He believes it was lost and void of any true followers of Christ. Now, whether MacArthur's right, I don't know. But, I mean, I will say this. A false Christian is the hardest person to reach. A false Christian is the hardest person in the world to reach. We live just under the buckle of a Bible belt. I have never met somebody in the South that's false, right? Everybody is saved. Everyone. I mean, I remember we, we used to go share the gospel on, uh, on Bill Street. We started by going to Bourbon Street one time. And by the way, I've been all over the world. Nothing's as crazy as Bourbon Street, right? We were sharing the gospel there. And so we started going to Bill Street after we got back. A group of us from Northwest, from the BSU, we'd go and, and I would share the gospel with people that were stoned out of their minds. Or they were just absolutely drunk and say, oh, I've, I've prayed the sinner's prayer. I'm, I'm a believer. Either they're lost or they're in desperate need of repentance, right? I mean, it, it is more difficult to show people they're lost and that they have never truly been regenerated by the power of the gospel than it is for the most wicked sinner to come to faith in Jesus. I, I'm reading through the gospel. I mean, we're, we're preaching through the gospel of John, and, and I'm reading about the Pharisees, and they all, because of their self-righteousness, fail to see Jesus. Again, the woman at the well. You know, I mean, tax collectors, sinners, are more likely to come to faith in Christ than those who are false Christians. So the first thing that Jesus is driving home, or the first issue he has with the church, is they were not useful to him, which leads us to point number two. They were not dependent on God. They were not useful to God, and they were not dependent on God. Go to verse 17. It says, for you say, this is what the Laodiceans say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and you need to underline this, highlight this, box it in, whatever in the words you do in your Bible, and I need nothing. This is what the church at Laodicea believed, that they needed nothing. And the church at Laodicea did what many Americans do today. <coughs> Excuse me. They equated economic prosperity with spiritual fulfillment. They equated economic prosperity with spiritual fulfillment. Uh, my former BSU director, Brother Tom uh, McLaughlin, always told us this. Temporary things will never satisfy the soul of an eternal being. The Laodiceans believed that because of their stuff, because of what they had, that they were good with God and needed nothing, and they could not be farther from the truth. The Laodiceans failed to realize their desperate need for God in their lives because of all the stuff they had. This was an entire city of rich, young rulers. What did Jesus tell the rich young ruler? Give all you have away to the poor. Come, follow me. The rich young ruler went away sad because the cost of following Jesus was too great. And he loved his stuff too much. The church at Laodicea was very, very similar to, the, to that young man. Church, don't miss this. Our economic prosperity does not take away from our spiritual depravity. In fact, it probably enhances it. It enhances it. They weren't dependent on God in any way, shape, or form. My former church, I had a young man in my youth group named A.J. Whitehead. His father, now Alvin, is the pastor at Bet Baptist Church. Love Alvin. Uh, Alvin has zero seminary training, but he preaches the gospel Sunday in and Sunday out. They've seen multitudes of people come to faith in Jesus uh, there at Bet Baptist Church. But when they were still at Wyatt, A.J. was sitting in his chair one day when he got back from work, and they, he walked in, he said, son, uh, you're in my chair, right? I mean, every man's got his spot, right? He said, son, you're in my chair. 
And AJ looked around and said, I don't see your name on it anywhere. Now, he was like any 17-year-old kid, and he needed a good whipping. Um, whooping, right? We, 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 we get whoopings in the South. And AJ said, Nancy, uh, uh, Alvin said, Nancy, go get the lockbox. Nancy was Alvin's lovely wife. And, and, and AJ said, I'll get up, I'll get up. He said, no, you sit right there. So she brought the lockbox. He opened it. He took out the closing papers from the house. He took out the deed to AJ's little truck he drove around in. He said, he said you tell me whose names are on these important pieces of paper. And AJ dropped his head and he said, Daddy, it's your name. He said, that's right, it's my name. He said, because this is my house and that's my chair. That truck you drive around in belongs to me. The gas you burn is mine. The very sheets that keep you warm at night belong to me. Now get out of my chair, right? Church, this is how we are with God sometimes. This, this, we feel like that, that, that 18-year-old kid who feels like he's a man because he's 18 years old, and he feels like he doesn't need anything, failing to realize that everything he owns came from someone else. Sometimes we have a tendency to believe that we can do things in our own strength and we don't need God when we desperately need God for everything. Make no mistake about it. You are sitting here in this place, this hour, this very moment, and the breath you just took, you took because there is a sovereign God in heaven who sustains the universe and he allowed you to take it. That's the only reason you're here. We are dependent on him for everything. So often we think, and the American dream, and, and let me tell you something, I'm as patriotic as I can be. It says you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you can do it all. That through innovation, that, that, that through being a hard worker, you can make it. The American dream is not a biblical one, though, church. I'm not knocking it, I'm just saying it's, it's not necessarily what Jesus calls us to. The Bible says we are dependent on him for everything. You know what's scary about planning a church? And about being at East Point. If I could conjure up some kind of some kind of church growth thing to make us boom in numbers, you know, if people have done that all across this country. I want to see a mighty movement of God where His Spirit falls on our people, and as they go forth, the gospel goes forth with power and conviction from them, and God's Spirit manifests itself in such a powerful way that we see people born again, and that's how God establishes our church. That's what I want. And what's so scary about that is it has nothing or little to nothing to do with me and everything to do with him. Right? I, I sat in seminary classes and I heard professors say for years, I mean, four years of a master's and a year of, of my doctorate of ministry, and I heard professors say, if you do this, you do this, you do this, God will grow your church. How, do, how can we manipulate the blessings of God? We can't. We can't, at the end of the day, we simply set the table and we beg God to bless us because we need him today more than ever before in our lives. And we rely on his blessings in our lives. Go back to the text. You say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus assesses them. And he says, you have not realized you're wretched, pitiable, poor, and blind. The Laodiceans were ignorant of their spiritual condition. Ignorant of it. I was in youth ministry for six years at Wyatt. Okay, that means I took six trips to camp. Okay, if you don't know this, summer camp for the youth pastor is a great week, and it's the most miserable week of his life. Um, right? You take 
40 to 50 kids, you get four or five adults that don't really want to go with you, and you travel somewhere and you get them away from their parents where they act like heathens, you know, and run around the whole time. Uh, I'm just kidding. We had some good kids at Wide. It makes it sound like it really was worse than it was. But junior high boys always amazed me. Always amazed me, right? Junior high boys in the middle of summertime, June, July, ran everywhere they went, right? If you see me running in June or July, call the police. Somebody's chasing me. Either that or the Yankees are paying me a lot of money to play baseball, okay? Because I'm not running around. Wade comes to the office like, hey, you can go for a jog with me? I'm like, no. Does it look like I want to go jog five miles? I don't think so, right? Like, 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 like you know, you're thinning up. I'm getting bigger. I'm getting the weight you're losing. This is fine with me. You jog. I, I may look into it in the fall. But junior high boys run everywhere at camp. I mean, they just run. They run. They run. And it's 100 degrees. So you know what they do? They stink. And for some reason, you know, some reason, like, I should be, it should, uh, you know, it should be biblical. Hey, take a shower every day, right? Teenage boys need a shower every day. And in seventh, eighth grade, boys are starting to understand, hey, they're girls. They're pretty. They smell nice. Like, I, you know, I want to be around them. And so what they do is they come in from running around all day. Worship time's coming. And they think, hey, they have two options. Lounge around and be lazy or take a shower. They're going to lounge around and be lazy. And then they take Axe body spray, which should be illegal in this country. And they spray it all over themselves. And I don't know if you've ever smelled Axe body spray mixed with B.O. It's not a good combination. And then they go up to girls and they, and they begin to talk with them. And they think they're being smooth. And the whole time I'm sitting there thinking, you stink. You stink. And they're completely ignorant of the fact that they smell. Church, this is Laodicea. I say that, it's, 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 a, it's a weird joke, but at the same time, look at the text. They believe themselves to be rich and to have prospered and need nothing, but in, in reality, they were wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. In reality, they, they had assessed themselves falsely. Their lukewarmness was, was compounded by this self-deception. He says, you may have gold upon gold, you may have silky black wool, you may have eye salve, for your eyes, however, you are poor, naked, and blind. And so look at verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the, uh, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Sal, to anoint your eyes that you may see. Jesus gives the church at Laodicea, I want you to see this in invitation in these verses. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire in, in 18. You go to verse 19. He tells them to repent. You go to verse 20, he says, I stand at the door and knock. If you'll open the door, Jesus is inviting them to repentance. He's giving them an invitation. He is offering them mercy and grace, even though they didn't deserve mercy and grace. He's offering it to them. Church, that, that's incredible. The fact that he's saying, hey, you make me so sick, I want to vomit you out of my mouth, yet my love is greater than your sin. That's great. That's good news. The fact that our sin is not too much for the grace of God to cover. Last I checked, and sometimes we have a tendency to categorize sin. Well, they, they're homosexual, and so their sin is different than mine. Yeah, the consequences of it is different. But in our culture, we're more likely to accept a man who is sleeping with his girlfriend more than we would that, and there's not really a dime's bit of difference in the two sins. Not really hardly anything different in it. We'll accept Johnny and Ashley over here. If your name's Johnny and Ashley, please forgive me. 
we'll accept Johnny and Ashley over here, but we'll, we'll, you know, and, and we'll welcome them with open arms, but we won't show love and share the gospel with the others. Last I checked, sin made us dead. Whether that sin was something great or something small, sin makes us dead, and if you're dead, you're dead. Only the gospel brings life. That's it. That is it, which leads us to our third charge here. They were not in fellowship with God. Look at verse 19. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. I love that. He says, those whom I love, it means he loves them, he reproves them. The word reprove here means to expose or to convict. Again, I'm preaching because I believe the Bible can convict. It exposes our sin, and it convicts us of our sin. The word discipline here means to correct and give guidance to. He says, so be zealous and repent. Now, there is a difference in repentance and being sorry. I didn't really understand the difference until I got married. Right? Marriage has taught me a lot. God has used that to mold me and shape me uh, more than anything else besides his word and his spirit in me. Marriage has, has helped craft me. And so when I got married... I mean, I got married when I was 23 years old. I lived out of my car. You know, I mean, I had like three sets of clothes I could put on in my car if I needed to. Junk was everywhere. I, you know, I mean, I had done whatever I wanted to do. I lived out uh, in college, get, come in, get married, and I just leave junk everywhere. And Austin's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm sorry. It, 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 took me re- it didn't take me long to realize, hey, just say you're sorry, right? Like, that whoever, whoever said that stupid saying, I love you means you never say you're sorry is an idiot. You know, like, like, I'm sorry, that may be a bad word to use on a sermon. But, so I just say I'm sorry. That just covered a multitude of sins. Until she finally realized, I'm just saying I'm sorry to get out of whatever it is I've done. So, over time, Austin finally said, look, I don't want you to tell me you're sorry and then just move on. I want you to tell me you're sorry and never do what you're doing again. Right? Quit walking by the dishwasher to put your cup in the sink when you can put it in the dishwasher. Right? Things like that. She wanted me to quit doing what I was doing and correct it. And let me tell you something. Jesus calls us to repentance. The definition is a change of mind that leads to a change in direction. If you want to know how you have truly repented of something, look and see if you're still doing it. Because the result of true repentance means you've turned from it. I believe that there are so many people in our churches today that are in bondage to sin and they haven't understood what Jesus talks about in John 8, 31 through 36, that the gospel frees us from the chains of sin. Frees us. The word repent here is an imperative. It is a must. And then go to verse 20. It says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Uh, for years, people, have, pastors and and evangelists have used this verse that, hey, Jesus is knocking on your heart's door. If you'll simply open the door of your heart, accept him into your heart, you'll be saved. That's what I've heard for years. You know what's great about, or what's, I say great, what's great about this passage is context. Who is Jesus talking to? Is he talking to lost people here? Or is he talking to the church? Talking to the church, right? So, so while the metaphor rings true in the sense that, yes, there's an effectual call of Jesus on our life, um, the, the, what Jesus is saying here is that I've been pushed out of the church, right? Verse 20 teaches us it's possible for the church to push Jesus out of its fellowship. John Piper said this, Christ did not die to purify a bride who would keep him on the porch while she watches TV in the den. Jesus did not 
die so that we may just have heaven to look forward to. No, 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 no. Jesus died so that we could have a relationship with him. This is what we have done in the church. We have made Jesus a means to an end and shame on us. We have said if you come to Jesus, you can have heaven. If you come to Jesus, you can have purpose. If you come to Jesus, you can have peace. No, 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 no. If you come to Jesus, you get God. And all those other things are byproducts of it. Right? You don't come to Jesus to get stuff that's using him. You come to Jesus because, according to 1 Peter 3.18, the righteous died for the unrighteous. Why? In order that he might bring us back to God. We have a relationship with him. We say it all the time. It's like the most cliche thing we say. Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. And the issue with these churches, they have pushed Jesus out of their midst. He gives them a picture. Go to verse 20. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will eat with him and he with me. The picture is of close, intimate fellowship. Don't miss it. That's the picture. What the Jews would do when they would have company over to their home and they would begin to fellowship with them is they would continue filling the, the, the cup of the guest. They would continue filling the cup up as long as they wanted that guest to remain, Right? They would continue to fill the cup up time and time again because they liked and they enjoyed the fellowship. And when the cup was down to empty, it was a kind way of saying, you don't have to go home, but you got to get out of here, right? That's just a nice way the Israelites did. They would just let the cup run empty and so that, so that they uh, could, to, could insinuate to them, hey, it's time to go home. What I love about Psalm 23 is David describes his relationship with the Lord and he says that his cup runs over. Don't miss the picture. Don't miss the picture. The picture is that Jesus longs for unending fellowship with his people. Unending fellowship with his people. You know why Jesus feared the cross so much? It wasn't the pain. It wasn't the agony. It was the fact that in that divine moment as the wrath of God was being poured out on him, as he became sin who knew no sin, in that moment, the fellowship with the Father broke. Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? Because in that, he, Jesus lived for unending fellowship with the Father. He sweat drops of blood because he feared it so much. And many of us will go home and we'll set our Bibles on a table and we'll pick it up next Sunday morning on our way out the door. Jesus longs for an intimate relationship with you. We have perverse this word intimate in our culture today. It is a close relationship it should be closer than any relationship you have in this life. Your relationship with Christ. I have three points of application in biblical truth. The first is this. We're to serve Jesus and live this life as an instrument in his hands being used for his glory. If you're not plugged into the life of Longview Point Baptist Church, get involved. Begin to serve. Get plugged in. Take ownership of what God is doing here at this church. Number two, wake up every day, deny yourself, cling to Jesus. Depend on him and not yourself. We live a self, uh, you know, we live in, we're self-reliant so much. Depend on Jesus and his work in your life. And number three, cultivate your relationship with Jesus and pursue him as the good shepherd. You know what's incredible about John 10? I preached it last week. What's incredible about the picture of the good shepherd is that when they would come, all the shepherds would bring their flocks and they would gather them in one big pen. As I'm reading this last week, I'm like, well, what, how do they get the sheep out of the pen? The shepherd would rise early in the morning. He would go stand on a hill 
and this shepherd would go stand on this hill, and they would begin calling the sheep by name. And the sheep knew the shepherd's voice. And you know what they did? They followed him. As we get ready for invitation, church, let me ask you, is the direction of your life a pursuit of Jesus? If I look at your life, does it show a life of one who is following after and pursuing the one who died in our place? Or is it showing yourself on the throne of your life?